Hello and welcome to this episode of Flirtation's Life to Tape. This is a podcast dedicated to classic stories and historical literature from around the world. These episodes will be the audio version of our visual audio series. To view our visual audiobooks, please visit our YouTube channel, Live to Tape, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash live to tape. Feel free to visit our website, Photations.com, and view the landscape, aerial, and time-lapse photography there. This podcast is presented ad-free, however, we rely on support from our listeners to create this podcast and our extensive artwork collection. Expenses like media hosting, media storage, editing software, and hardware like computers, audio, and photography equipment runs into the thousands. Any donation amount helps, no matter how small or large, is greatly appreciated. Visit Photations.com donations for more information or email donations at Photations.com. Fine art photography is also available for purchase at PhotationStore.com. Prints are made to order and available in large and small formats, including canvas, metallic prints, as well as traditional high-end photographic paper, and standard sizes. Votations and this podcast can also be supported through the Podcasting 2.0 method. Using a Podcasting 2.0 application like Sphinx Chat or Podverse, you can stream Satoshis, which is one millionth of a Bitcoin, as you listen to the podcast. You only donate as you listen to the episode, and the amount you set per minute is completely up to you. At this time, 1,844 Satoshis is about $1, and you can choose to stream one Satoshi a minute, or 100, or even 2,000. It's completely up to you. Another way to support this show is through word of mouth. Feel free to tell your friends or family about Fortations live to tape. Feel free to share on social media and support by following the Twitter, at Fortations for photographic content, and at live to tape for our visual audiobooks and podcast announcements. Thanks for choosing to listen to Flotations Live to Tape. Let's begin this audiobook. Chapter 10. The Signal Vicky's departure the next morning did not go well. For one thing, Mrs. Heath was suspicious when Vicky repaired the plane engine so easily. She said, and Vicky wondered how much the woman guessed. For another thing, Lucy was fearful again this morning when Vicky hinted, It's a fine clear day. Just come... For a little flight, Lucy. One look at Lucy's face showed she longed to leave. Mrs. Heath said quickly to Lucy, I'm not feeling well again this morning. Please don't leave me alone. Lucy looked at the older woman almost guiltily. Maybe some day I'll take a ride with you, Vicky, was the most the girl would say. Her employer sighed. You girls probably think me very strict, but I'm like to remind you that I'm half ill. I, it's, I have important work to do. You know very well, my dear, she said to Lucy, that I need you. The woman played on the girl's pity, and Vicky saw that Lucy had not the heart to walk out openly. Also, Lucy herself had pleaded last night she obviously needed more time to think. There there was nothing now Vicky could do except thank them both and climb into the plane. Just before she slammed the door, Vicky called out, I should be back in San Francisco area by noon. Noon. Lucy Lucy nodded, and she and Mrs. Heath walked a safe distance from the plane, 
waving to her in minutes vicky took off from the air sh the hidden house quickly sank out of sight oddly enough she reached Novito airport outside san francisco precisely at noon who was mrs heath this was what vicky wanted to learn now who was this woman who had coincidentally appeared at the hotel alcott and out of the blue offered lucy a job why was she detaining lucy and who was this lucy rowe in new york the girl who had flown into new york on vicky's plane yet had not then worn the silver ring suddenly vicky remembered an incident of the flight with its emergency landing the lost gold charm inscribed dorothy it had fallen off somebody's bracelet or out of somebody's purse or pocket yet when the stewardess tried to return the valuable trinket no one had claimed it why not did dorothy not wish her to be identified herself suppose vicky thought in a flash of insight that the alleged l row on that flight was actually miss dorothy dorothy somebody in that case she couldn't dare claim an inscribed charm it would publicly reveal her to be an impostor and by now vicky was convinced that the dark-haired lucy of the bryant's house was in fact an impostor or am i only guessing about the charm well she could think of ways to go she could think of ways to find out when she was again in new york this afternoon she had other points to check the telephone number in new york which lucy said mrs heath had called apparently a business place who was the, at the other end vicky tried a bold plan she asked on the hotel phone for the new york number herself she heard the connection go through heard the san francisco operator say san francisco calling and give the new york operator the number then the telephone ringing three thousand miles away ringing as clearly as if it were next door a crisp business-like voice answered two three four five good afternoon vicky was disappointed she had hoped that whoever answered would say the firm's name if there was a firm name in this case hello said the voice in her ear hello vicky replied and swallowed nervously this is mrs heath calling there there the step was taken oh yes mrs heath one moment please i'll bring i'll ring mr doran mr doran he and mrs heath were linked she never suspected it thurman doran's voice came on hello mother he said vicky nearly dropped the telephone she was careful not to answer not to make a sound mother is anything wrong what are you doing in san francisco a pause hello hello vicky held her breath she hoped don would think of something had gone wrong with their telephone connection he repeated his hellos when the buzz the receptionist and demanded what happened to my san francisco call sally you're still connected mr door now his voice sounded angry mother is that you hello don hung up and vicky hung up too phew her heart was banging away over the discovery in the next instant vicky realized that by pretending to be mrs heath she had put herself in a dangerous position even more she had put lucy in danger for thurman doran could easily check by calling mrs heath then she would inform him that vicky barr had flown in as an uninvited guest at the hidden house and that lucy half wanted to leave with her doran would know vicky barr was on their was on their trail and lucy might really disappear oh what have i done vicky groaned but it was done now and no use fretting about it she had gained an immensely valuable piece of information but at a high price she had known all along that the search for lucy was risky 
One thing stood out urgently now, that she had probably aroused Dorn's suspicion. She must get Lucy out of that hidden house and away from Mrs. Heath as soon as possible. Tomorrow or the next day at the latest. Time was of the essence. She had Lucy, she and Lucy had would need time, too, to reach the Bryants at some degree of safety. But she was scheduled for a federal flight day after tomorrow, Sunday. Time. Vicky... Vicky at once telephoned the Federal Airlines office in San Francisco's International Airport and asked for her flight stewardess supervisor, but Miss Milton was in a conference, which would last the rest of the afternoon, and no one else was authorized to change Vicky's flight schedule. Please tell Miss Middleton, Vicky said into the telephone, I'll come to see her tomorrow at 8 in the morning, a day lost and no help for it, a day for Dawn to use. Mother and son, Mr. Doran, the lawyer, assigned to find Lucy, and Mrs. Heath, the employer, who Lucy, who took Lucy away with her to the hills, were in, were in collusion. The next thing is to prove it, Vicky realized, and Mr. and Mrs. Bryan are so delighted with their bogus daughter, granddaughter, that they might never accept the true Lucy without proof. Proof, facts, which were matters of record. She remembered that Doran stayed at the St. Clair Hotel from January 12th to 21st, and on February 21st, during his first and second visit to search for Lucy, Vicky called up the hotel and asked for the man who advised her before, and inquired, Can you, tell, can you please tell me whether Mrs. Elizabeth Heath was at the St. Clair Hotel around the middle of January, and again in February around Washington's birthday? She waited and then was told, Yes, Miss Heath was registered here last January 12th and stayed two days. Did she leave a forwarding address? Yes, Mrs. Heath moved from here to the Hotel Alcott. Was she accompanied by Mr. Thurman Dorn when she checked in here? We have no record of that. You're welcome, Miss Barr. They arrived together in San Francisco and had been discreet enough to register separately. Mr. Dorn must have gained some information quickly about Lucy, for two days later, Mrs. Heath had moved into the Hotel Alcott, where Lucy had just moved into, and Mrs. Heath had lost no time in striking up an acquaintance with Lucy, offering her a job, lured her away from San Francisco, where anyone could find her, hid her in the hills, and the next move Vicky saw plainly was to lure Lucy into going abroad, a very smooth way to make Lucy disappear, so that they could put their own confederate into Brian's house and inherit the Bryant's fortune. And Mr. Dorn, while his mother was busy getting Lucy out of the way, what had he been doing? Finding a suitable hideout house? Arranging to rent a car? So Mr. Dorn's report to the Bryants that Lucy was on a trip when traveling with friends was a prearranged lie. The same lie as the glib one from False Lucy told. Never mind constructing the details of their scheme, Vicky told herself. I have no time now. The urgent thing to do is to get Lucy. She glanced out the window. It was dusk, and she could not do much more today beyond getting up the signal. By telephone, she reached the minister's residence, but only the secretary was in. Another conference and delay. Vicky made an appointment to see Mr. Hall, or at least talk with him on the telephone, early next morning, after he had seen her supervisor. She would know by then how much time she had to rescue Lucy. She made one further phone call to a car rental agency. On a gamble, she reserved a car for either tomorrow or Sunday morning, depending on what free time Federal Airlines allowed her, 
It was about three-hour drive to Pine Top. If she made an early enough start and drove fast, she would keep the noon rendezvous. Vicky sat down to think over Lucy's dangerous situation and her own. She wanted very much to report what she had found to the police and leave the responsibilities for trying to rescue the girl to them, but she recalled Lucy's fear that her grandparents did not really want her. Bringing Lucy to them via the police might turn her grandparents against her. Vicky sighed, I better get Lucy out of that hidden house before Mrs. Heath and Mr. Dorm thinks up any new plans for her. Early the next day, Saturday morning, rain poured down. All day March rain from the Weather Bureau prediction. In the hotel room, Vicky turned the radio on and heard that small aircrafts were ordered grounded. Most big commercial airlines continued to fly on schedule, and for the driver, road conditions were fair. Fair enough to drive to Pine Top, Vicky decided, providing I can get there by noon first, providing I can get extra time off to allow for any delays or unexpected developments, for she might not get back from Pine Top, Pine Top today since might miss her scheduled 9 a.m. flight tomorrow. She bundled up and went to take a bus out to the International Airport. San Francisco was wrapped in fog and made halos of street lamps and shadows of people. Vicky barely found the bus, which appeared to be floating. It crawled at the ma- at a maddeningly slow pace, the 13 miles to- out to the International Airport. I'll never be able to reach Pine Top by noon, Vicky moaned. Not in this fog. Why, just going to the car rental place and then driving out of San Francisco could take an hour. She'd have to go tomorrow, unless tomorrow she found herself in a uniform aboard the Electra. In the fog, she groped her way to the Federal Airlines building using the Hangar 1 entrance. It was a quarter to eight. Miss Milton was already in her office for the first time in her career as a stewardess. Vicky asked to be excused from making a scheduled flight. Miss Middleton, on learning that Vicky had urgent personal issues, granted a leave of absence of three days to be made up later. Provided, said the supervisor, I can find a stewardess to take your place. I'll phone you at your hotel soon, sometime tomorrow afternoon today. Sometime afternoon today. That settled it. No trip to Pine Top today. Vicky went. Vicky went to one of the telephone booths in the corridor. I called the car rental agency and said she would want a car tomorrow. Not today. Then though it was early to just dis- dis- then though it was early to disturb him, Vicky called the minister. He was at breakfast and very glad and relieved to hear back from her. Have you found Lucy, Miss Vicky? Yes I have. Good, good. Where is she? At a place called Pine Top, and it isn't good at all, Mr. Hall. I'm going to get her out of there tomorrow. I hope, but in order to rescue Lucy, I need your help here in San Francisco. Anything you say, Miss Vicky, your tone of voice alarms me. Do you want me to come see? Do you want to come see me and talk it over? They discussed meeting, but since Vicky had to be back at her hotel by noon, they decided they might as well talk fully on the telephone. Vicky dropped more coins into the telephone box as the operator requested. Well, Mr. Hall. Lucy is in serious trouble. Vicky described the situation with Mrs. Heath. I don't understand why this Mrs. Heath wants to detain the girl, said the minister. It is detention. But why? Can you tell me why? His voice sounded so concerned that Vicky could almost see the minister's face, his quiet expression and perspective eyes. Why should she not confide in him? 
He was Lucy's good old friend. Yes, I'll tell you why, Mr. Hall, Ricky said into the telephone. It's a long story, and it goes back to Lucy's grandparents. Her grandparents, her only surviving grandparents, are the Marshall Brands in New York? Yes, they want Lucy at last, you see, but a terrible thing has happened because of the inheritance. Ricky told the minister the whole story of the Bryans, Thurman Dorn, and the false Lucy. Then she told him of her own search, which had led her to Lucy and Mrs. Heath and the truth. I'm appalled, the minister said, after she had finished. Why not go to the police at once? Because it could ruin Lucy's first meeting with her grandparents, the Vicky explained. Lucy's nervous about meeting the Bryans. After years of being ostracized, she mentioned their abhorred their abhorrence for publicity. Yes, I see, the minister said reluctantly. What alternatives is there? What do you plan to do, Miss Vicky? She told him of her plan to return to Pine Top. She told Mr. Hull on the phone telephone signal Lucy was listening for, and described exactly what he must do, and gave him the telephone number of the hidden house. I'll call you tomorrow, Mr. Hull, just before I start out over the car. It's a three-hour drive, so I'll call you early. You're to signal by telephone at 9 a.m. That will give Lucy three hours' notice. Of course I'll do it. But, Miss Vicky, isn't it dangerous for you, and Lucy too, to attempt this escape? She replied that Mrs. Heath might not be watching Lucy so closely in broad daylight. On the big grounds of the Gildan Place, among its many trees and bushes, Lucy, with her outdoor chores, could quite naturally wander out of sight. If the plan doesn't work, Vicky caught her breath at a chance. If anything goes wrong, Mr. Hall, then you better call the police. How will I know if the plan hasn't succeeded? When I drive back to San Francisco, bringing Lucy, I'll call you. That should be about 3 or 3.30, 4, at the latest. I'll call you then, or if there's trouble at any point, I'll try to phone you. And if I don't hear from you by 4 tomorrow, I'm to call the police? Yes, Mr. Hall. Thank you very, very much. I don't like it, he said. It's dangerous. I don't like it much myself, but it's the best we can do. They left it at that and said goodbye until the next day. Vicky felt grateful that she had someone like Mr. Hall to rely on. In the fog, Vicky found the airport bus stop. She rode back slowly over the blurred roads and bridges. When she got off the bus in downtown San Francisco, the pavement seemed bottomless under her feet. She reached her hotel, glad to be indoors, where she where where there were lights through it was somewhere through it was nowhere near noon though it was nowhere near noon vicky settled down in her room and waited for the flight supervisor call waiting the day seemed the longest of her life vicky did everything she could think of to pass the time she read she sewed a little she sent down for a sandwich visited a stewardess next door read some more at four o'clock, the telephone rang. It was the flight stewardess supervisor to notify Vicky that her request for extra time was granted. Vicky went downstairs to the lobby about five o'clock. The stewardess of several airlines who stayed at the hotel had a favorite corner where they looked for one another and exchanged flying news. This afternoon, two girls from Trans USA gray uniform were sitting there having hot tea. Vicky knew them slightly, and they were Peggy Bennett and Nancy Narito. Hello, you look as though you've just come in from a flight, Vicky greeted. And such a flight, grueling, said Peggy. Come sit down, Vicky. 
she said, and they had a flown by a jet nonstop from New York and a five-hour-and-a-half run, starting from 1.30 New York time to the afternoon. The most demanding passenger you ever saw, Nancy said, as Vicky joined them. I admit that they were interesting people, but one young man nearly drove Peg and me out of our minds. A lawyer, I think. He was awfully anxious to get here, Peggy said, to excuse him. Our Boeing 747 didn't go fast enough to suit Mr. Dorn. Vicky froze. Did you say Mr. Dorn? Do you remember his first name? I think it was Thurman, said Nancy. Why, Vicky, what's the matter? Are you feeling well? No, I'm not. Was anyone traveling with Mr. Dorn? He was alone, Vicky. You turned white. Here, have some of this tea. I think I'd better go to my room, Vicky said, and excused herself. Upstairs in her room, she did some rapid figuring. Yesterday afternoon, she had guardedly telephoned Dorn's office in New York, giving his name as Mrs. Heath, and then kept silent. Today, Dorn had taken the fastest plane he could, the fastest plane he could board to San Francisco. His actions could only mean one thing. His suspicions were aroused by her telephone call. He probably telephoned his mother right back, learned that she was not, that she had not just called him and learned about Vicky Barr's surprise visit to the hidden house that night before Miss Heath would have told him how Vicky Barr struck up a sympathetic acquaintance with Lucy. The woman had been disturbed about that. Dorn would be disturbed, too. Further, Mrs. Heath had probably told him that Vicky Barr had flown back to San Francisco earlier on the day of the faked telephone call. So Dorn knew now that Vicky Barr was checking up on him and Mrs. Heath. He was certain enough or to take the first plane to San Francisco to come here and circumvent her. This was what Vicky had feared, and it had come true. What will Dorn do next, Vicky wondered. Steady now, I mustn't panic. Well, he'll go out to Pine Top and take Mrs. Heath and Lucy out of there. Take some, take them someplace where I can't find them again. This time Lucy really did disappear, and then Thurman Dorn will deal with me. She shivered. Stop it, she scolded herself. I must try to think clearly. How soon, how fast could Dorn reach Pine Top? The city was still wrapped in a fog, so there were outlying highways, and the radios reported that meant Dorn could not fly or drive to Pine Top today, not with the night closing in. He'd probably start for Pine Top first thing tomorrow morning, weather permitted, just as she herself planned to do. Suppose I encountered Dorn on the highway while I'm driving to Pine Top. She would have disguised herself a little and a drive and drive a closed car. Perhaps he goes to Pine Top in a private plane. He'd arrive before I do. Will that ruin Lucy's getaway or getaway? At least she had one small advantage. She already had a car reserved. Dorn would encounter some delay in renting a car or renting a private plane and the services of a pilot since these were much in demand and often sold out in advance. Probably he would be able to hunt around and rent something, but it would take him extra time. When she went to bed, Vicky noticed that the fog had turned into a driving rain. She rose very early Sunday morning. It was still raining hard. The radio predicted an all-day downpour and reported that the roads were washed out in several locations. Motorists were advised to cancel their plans and stay off the highways. Oh, how awful, Vicky thought. Another day lost. Well, I'm going to Pine Top tomorrow, I hope. She immediately made two telephone calls, one to Mr. Hall asking him to call Pine Top 
tomorrow instead of today. The other was to the car rental agency, changing her reservation to the next day. And then Vicky ventured out in the rain to attend church. She lived through the rest of that Sunday somehow. Monday morning, she again was up early. The weather was clear. She dressed quietly without waking up Jean Cox and tied a scarf over her head to conceal her light hair and took some of the bulky coat and dark glasses. These things were to make her less recognizable in case she met Dorn anywhere along the way. She took a scarf, sunglasses, and a sweater for Lucy. Although she was too worried to feel hungry, she forced herself with breakfast at one of the few restaurants open that early. She Here she purchased sandwiches and had a thermos bottle she had brought along filled with coffee. Now she and Lucy needed to stop for lunch, lose precious time. Now she and Lucy needed not stop for lunch, lose precious time, make themselves visible in case Doran was out looking for them. It, that is, if she herself could reach the appointed place in the road without mishap, if Lucy could keep the rendezvous, if they actually could make their way, it make their getaway. Before she reached the car rental agency, Vicky put on a coat and dark glasses, a sedan driven out for her with gas tank filled to capacity. Vicky signed the necessary papers and paid a deposit, and then went to the telephone booth. She called the minister. I'm leaving now, Mr. Hall. Get an early start. I'll phone your phone signal around nine. Yes, at nine. I'll be listening for your telephone call this afternoon to learn of you and Lucy are safe. Good luck, Miss Vicky. Thanks, Mr. Hall. I'll need it. Out on the highway, traffic was light, and she made good time. Vicky kept watching in her rear vision mirror to see if any car was following her, but so far, so good. Of course, Dorn would be heading to Pine Top on any several alternative roads. The drive seemed a long one. It helped that she had twice flown over the mother low country. The small towns and rivers were familiar landmarks and guides, but the car was slow compared to the plane, particularly when the land grew rolling and then hilly. At twenty minutes before noon, she was driving through Pine Top, and there was no sign of a car or private plane coming in from the same direction as she was. Vicky headed the car up the steep, winding hill, which led to the hidden house. She drove to the sharp curve at the top of the road and found the area of trees a little off the road to provide some concealment of the car, and backed into it. Vicky turned off the ignition and waited. The birds singing, the sun shone on the empty road. What if Lucy doesn't come, Vicky thought. What if she loses her nerve and doesn't try, or tries but can't get out? The wooden door in the wall is kept locked, and surely somewhere she could find a place to climb out over the wall. The minutes dragged, or suppose she and Miss Heath have already left, and Mrs. Heath has rented a car. Dawn could have phoned them to leave at once. If only she could go close enough to the house and see and hear what was going on. Was Dorn there? Was Mrs. Heath keeping an extra close watch on Lucy? Vicky got out of the car to stretch her legs. She wanted badly to venture around the bend in the road to see whether Lucy was coming. Coming. It was a minute or two until noon, but she stayed in the little enclosure of the trees, half out of sight. She heard a car coming up the hill. Vicky stepped behind her own car just as a black sedan whizzed by by a man driving its only occupant. He was... He had red hair. Thank goodness it wasn't Don. Suddenly a figure came running around the bend, hair flying. It was Lucy. Here I am, Lucy hissed. Hurry, where's the car, Lucy grasped. 
Get in. They got in and slammed the door, and Vicky turned on the ignition and tore out of her hiding place. They streaked down the steep road. Are you all right, Lucy? Is anyone else in the house? No, a man is coming this morning. Driving, he phoned Saturday night and Sunday morning. Mrs. Heath had had me pack our suitcases this morning. Hurry, Vicky. Mrs. Heath is probably looking for me now, and she has a car. They sped through Pine Top and onto the open highway. Vicky saw a car coming. Any car coming might be done. She kept on going at the top speed aloud. Vicky, there's a scarf and sunglasses on the seat. Put them on. Cover your face and hair all you can. How'd you get out? I pretended to be gardening near the wall, climbed a tree, and dropped onto the top of the wall, and scrambled down on the outside. Lucy gave a shaky laugh. I tore my stockings. I, might be, I must be a sight. I didn't bring even a purse or sweater or anything with me, nothing except my family documents in my pocket of my dress. That's all that matters. The silver ring was on Lucy's hand. Mr. Hall phoned twice, around nine, Lucy said. Mr. Hall got awfully annoyed. Mrs. Heath got awfully annoyed. The telephone company testing, she complained to tell me, but I heard the phone signal. Anyway, Lucy let out a long sigh of relief. Where are we going? Back to San Francisco to catch a plane to New York. I think we'll make it to San Francisco. Think we'll make it to San Francisco safely? We will have a fast car, a good chance. Sit back and try to relax, Lucy. They rode for many miles in silence. Both girls were tense. After a while, Vicky asked Lucy to open up the sandwiches and coffee. They had a hard time swallowing any food and lapsed into silence again. Then Lucy said, And if when we get to New York, do you plan to take me to my grandparents? Yes, we'll go directly to the Bryants. Lucy seemed fearful. Vicky provided her... Vicky reproved her. Besides, unless you want to go to the police, it's the only place where either of us will be safe. Vicky omitted, saying, provided we can reach the Bryants before Dawn does. She did not want to frighten Lucy's further, and Lucy was already nervous enough about facing her grandparents. Chapter 11 Escape At a gas station, Vicky slowed down, looking around cautiously for any car which might be Dorn's before he, she stopped. No sign, no sign of Dorn yet. Vicky brought gas and did not linger. Out of the highway, she picked up speed and said to Lucy, Now listen to me. Miss Heath and her son are trying to keep you away from the Bryants and your rightful inheritance. They want the Bryants' wealth for themselves. But how could they? I don't understand. Who is Mr. Heath's son? He's Dorn, a lawyer your grandparents hired to find you. That was when Mrs. Heath had lured you out to the hills. Then, when you were practically a prisoner, Don brought a girl he said was Lucy Rowe to your grandparents. But I'm Lucy Rowe, and they accepted her on his word and evidence, and because of the silver ring she wears, Lucy gasped, their next step is to persuade you to go abroad and stay there. Now this other girl, who in collusion with Dawn and Miss Heath is living in with your grandparents' house, is pretending to be you. Lucy burst into tears. That's terrible. Are you sure, Vicky? How do you know? I met the girl at the Bryan's house. That's how I know. And I only hope, Vicky said tensely, that Dorn and Miss Heath don't stop us from ever reaching New York. Lucy said, crying, Even so, please don't. Please let's not go to the police. Not even to report them. I don't want my grandparents to hear about me first from the police. 
I want to meet them in a happy way. You shall. Don't cry any more, Lucy. Don't look so afraid. I think Dorn and Mrs. Heath's main intent now is to read the Bryans first with their story before you and I do. They probably won't waste time in trying to stop us. Vicky did not entirely believe this, but Lucy could not stand much more strain. They were approaching the outskirt of San Francisco. Vicky stopped at the public telephone booth and called the minister. It was a little past three o'clock in the afternoon. Miss Vicky, he said, what a relief to hear from you. Are you all right? Is Lucy with you? Yes, Mr. Hall. Here she is. Vicky handed Lucy the receiver, whispering, be quick. She moved away, but heard Lucy say, oh, Mr. Hall, if only I'd listened to you. Lucy talked to him for a minute or two, then gave the phone back to Vicky. I'm going to try to get us on a plane to New York this afternoon, Vicky said to him. I think Federal Airlines will find room aboard for us. Please don't worry, Mr. Hall. Thank you for your everything. We'll keep in touch with you. Vicky called Federal Reservation Desk. As one of their stewardess, she could fly free on vacation, and in addition, she could get a pass when she had the mileage coming to her. Luckily, she had it now. Vicky pleaded for a seat for herself and one of her friends, Lucy Rohr, since Vicky insisted this was an emergency reservation, agreed to accept her check for Lucy's fare, and told her to go out to International Airport and wait. If at the last minute a flight had two seats still unpurchased or had two cancellations, she and Lucy were welcome to them. First, they returned to the rental car and traveled by taxi to the airport. The rotunda of Vicky and Lucy made themselves as inconspicuous as they could round a corner. Don and Miss Hill might walk through the terminal at any time. The two girls waited out one flight after another. The passenger traffic was heavy. Not a single federal flight had space for them. Vicky began to worry and to grow tired and hungry. Lucy was drooping. Vicky went again and again to the reservation desk, reminding them, begging for seats. The evening wore on, but now Dorn and Mrs. Heath had ample time to drive from Pine Top to San Francisco, and as they themselves were going to try to get space on a flight, who was going to win this grim race? Finally, at 10.30, reservations cleared. Vicky and Lucy got to board a federal DC-7 air coach. It wasn't a fast plane as the Electra, but it was at least it flew a direct trans transcontinental route. There wouldn't have been there would have they would have to change planes in Chicago. The two stewardesses were acquainted with Vicky and were surprised to see her come aboard. Noticing how tired she and Lucy were, they brought them sandwiches and hot coffee once they were aloft, and then blankets. The two girls were exhausted to say or think another single thing. They fell asleep and slept through the quiet night flight. Next thing Vicky knew, a stewardess was shaking her. Wake up, Vicky. We're coming in to Chicago in five minutes. Vicky awakened Lucy. It was half dark and cold, and they left the plane. The two bed-wrangled figures and boarded another plane. Takeoff time was at 7 a.m. The girls slept again at 10.30 a.m. New York time. They landed in Idlewild Airport. A federal crew car gave them a ride into Manhattan, and Vicky asked to be left at the apartment she shared with several other stewardess friends. It was just as well that no one but their housekeeper, Mrs. Duff, was home. Chapter 12. The Silver Rings 
I can't meet my grandparents for the first time looking like this, Lucy said. I know it's important for us to get to them before Mr. Dorn does, but it's important for me to look nice too. Don't worry, Vicky said. I'll lend you some of my clothes. You go shower and change now. I will too. But first I must take some telephone I must make some telephone calls. She telephoned LaGuardia Airport and asked for the lost and found desk. Hello, this is the Federal Airline Stewardess, Vicky said into the telephone. Hello, this is the Federal Airline Stewardess, Vicky said into the telephone, who turned in a golden charm inscribed with Dorothy. One of the passengers lost it. Can you tell me whether anyone has ever claimed it? It's still here, the clerk told her. No one has even inquired about it, so far as I know. That confirmed her suspicion. The owner was afraid to come for it. The reason why might prove interesting. Next, she telephoned the Bryant's house. Mrs. Bryant was surprised and pleased to hear from her. Ricky asked whether she could come by over to see them and offered that she'd like to bring a friend to meet them. Soon, please. It's important. We'd be delighted to see you and your friend, Mrs. Bryant, said Mrs. Bryant, but it can't be this morning. We're expecting guests for lunch at 12.30. Why don't you come, you and your friend, at 2? At 2, Vicky repeated. She longed to ask whether the lunch guests would include Mr. Dorn or whether the Bryants had heard from Dorn yesterday or today, but she couldn't very well ask. We'll be there at 2. Thank you very much, Mrs. Bryant. Lucy had come in. Wearing a bathrobe and hearing Vicky make the appointment, she looked woe-belonged, still lost. Vicky had to encourage her. Yes, I know my grandparents want me, Lucy said excitedly. But the other Lucy, is she more attractive than I? Not nearly as likable, Vicky said to soothe her. I can't help feeling nervous, though, especially since you've told me what Mr. Dorn's been up to, Lucy said. Come on, let's find you some clothes, and that will fit you and be becoming. Vicky borrowed her Vicky borrowed from her own jeans and wardrobe. She made herself presentable. Then Mrs. Duff gave them a quick lunch, and they ate. The girls debated whether Lucy still had, in certain ways, the hardest part of the ordeal struggled through. On the way over to the Bryants, Lucy was silent and preoccupied. She wore the silver ring that her family document and had the family documents in her purse. When she had the mansion her grandparent when she saw the mansion her grandparents lived in, she hesitated. Vicky took her hand and escorted her at the marble step. I'll never fit in here, Lucy whispered, as they followed the butler toward the room with the park parakeets. Yes, you will, Vicky whispered back. Wait and see. Mr and Mrs. Bryant were waiting for them. Vicky's heart sank when she saw that Lucy, the false Lucy, was with them. She had wanted to talk to them alone. Mrs. Bryant rose and came forward to greet the two girls. How nice to meet you, Vicky. I'm so glad you brought your friend. I asked our Lucy to stay and meet her. The true Lucy stared at the impostor. There was no real resemblance between them, except that both were brown-haired around the same age, and either Lucy might have once been a little girl in the snapshot. The true Lucy must have seen the silver ring on the other Lucy's hand, for she thrust her hand in her pocket to hide her own silver ring. Lucy took her friend's arm to give her courage, as Mr. Bryant and the sophisticated-looking girl from the rose, from and the sophisticated-looking girl rose from the sofa. Vicky said, "This is my friend from San Francisco, Lucy Rowe." It took all her courage to come right out and say that she watched the false Lucy closely. "Lucy Rowe," Mrs. Bryant exclaimed. 
and looked out of wonder, crossed her face. What a coincidence, the other girl said, after a pause. How do you do, Miss Rowe? Lucy was unable to speak. She looked into Mrs. Bryant's face with her feelings naked in her eyes. Marshall Bryant said, Quite a coincidence, eh, Miss Vicky? Two girls with the same name. Well, well, let's all sit down anyway. He sat down heavily. I ate too much lunch. Lucy stared at her grandfather. She stayed as close to him as she could. To Lucy stared at her grandfather. She stayed as close as she could to Vicky, her hand still in her pocket. How odd that you never met, the false Lucy said smoothly and truly. And how odd that we've never met, the false Lucy said smoothly to the true Lucy. I'm from San Francisco too, you know. It is quite a coincidence, isn't it, Mrs. Bryant said shakily. Vicky drew a deep breath and said what sooner or later had to be said. It's more than a coincidence, Miss Bryant. This young woman is your granddaughter, and I can... That's preposterous, the false Lucy exclaimed. She was furious. I am the Bryant's granddaughter, and I resent. And I can prove it, Vicky went on evenly. There has been some terrible mistake here, if one can call it a mistake. Marshall Bryant snorted. Young lady, you have a pipe dream. Thurman Dorn is a good man, a good lawyer. He doesn't make mistakes. Do you think I'd hire an incompetent man? Vicky was shaking all over. It isn't simply a mistake, Mrs. Bryant. Forgive me for contradicting you, but Mr. Dorn has deliberately brought you the wrong girl. Rot, the big man said, with the false Lucy drew herself up in scorn. Only Mrs. Bryant, her hands trembling so badly that she had to clasp them and said to the newcomer, Tell me, my dear, do you believe yourself to be our granddaughter? Slowly, Lucy drew out her hand of her pocket and extended it. Here's the ring you gave my mother, and here are the photographs of us all, and a letter you wrote to my mother. The false Lucy laughed. No one took the thing Lucy offered. She stood there abashed. The false Lucy cried, My grandpa, they're fakes, forgeries, that's all. Mrs. Bryant glanced back and forth between the two Lucys, bewildered and hurt. Finally, she reached down and took the photographs and letters and examined them. Marshall, she said, I did write this letter to Eleanor. He made a gesture of disbelief. Mrs. Bryant turned to the newcomer. Where did you get this letter? Mother gave it to me, just as she gave me this ring. I also have my mother's ring. The false Lucy indignantly held up her hand with the silver ring. She was still assured, but her face had turned a sickly white. Marshall Bryant exploded. Someone here is lying. If you think I'll set aside the detailed proof of my lawyer... I'll reject this lovely young woman we're so fond of. If you expect me to take the word of a girl I've never seen or heard before, why, it is preposterous. Vicky, where in the world did you find this girl? And what in the world are you thinking of? Vicky said as bravely as she could, Mr. Bryant, I have proof that she is your granddaughter, if you only listen to me. I think we better listen, Marshall, said Mrs. Bryant. I, before Mr. Don found Lucy, requested our young friend since she sometimes flies in and out of San Francisco to see whether she could learn anything about our granddaughter. You did, Marshall Bryant turned to Vicky, and you actually investigated, but you're not a trained investigator. Just the same, please listen to what I found out, Vicky pleaded. The butler came in to say that Mr. Thurman Dorn was at the door and asked whether the Bryants would see him. Certainly we'll see him, Mr. Bryant said right away. Lucky he's here. Mrs. Bryant murmured that this seemed to be better 
This seemed to be their day of coincidences, Ricky said. This is no coincidence either, Miss Bryant. Mr. Doran has just flown in from San Francisco, where he was yesterday, intending to stop me from bringing Lucy to you. Marshall Bryant stared at her as if she were out of her mind. Then the false Lucy smiled pityingly. They waited for Doran, and Lucy said to Vicky very low, This is the scariest reception I'd ever dreamed of. Doran came in, his suit rumpled as if he had slept in it all night. However, he was self-poised as ever, and gave Vicky and her Lucy a look of under contempt. I see these two fakes beat me here, he said. Good afternoon, Miss Bryant. Lucy, how are you, sir? May I impose on your hospitality and ask for some hot coffee? I've just flown to San Francisco and back on your behalf. I flew all last night on a richly slow coach plane, a long roundabout Dallas-Memphis local, he said disgustingly. The only plane I could get on last night without a reservation. He sank into his chair. Vicky and Lucy exchanged glances. Getting here before dawn hadn't done them much good. Marshall Bryant had spoke to him sympathetically while Mrs. Bryant ordered the coffee. Vicky decided to attack Dorn before he could attack her. Mr. Dorn, I found out about your mother, Miss Heath, lured Lucy out of San Francisco. Your mother, Mrs. Bryant, in surprise, and you kept Lucy virtually a prisoner in your... Stop lying, Don ordered. You're a ridiculous little amateur detective who's been meddling, a prisoner in a lonely house near the Sierra Nevadas, until I got her out of there yesterday. And that's where you were yesterday, Mr. Dorn, in Pine Top. Dorn's eyes narrowed. The false Lucy kept perfectly still. The lawyer retorted, Miss Barr, you evidently are stupid and irresponsible. Perhaps this girl is, too, dreaming up some fantastic tale. Prisoner, he turned to Mr. Bryant. What has she told you? Mrs. Bryant answered, They showed us another silver ring and these photograph le- photographs and letters. Don smiled dryly. Documents can be forged or stolen. A silver ring can be copied, too, by a clever jeweler. He turned to the true Lucy and thundered at her, How did you manage to steal and forge these things? As Lucy drew back in fright, Vicky said, Any stealing and forging that was done, you did, from the Bryant safe here in the house. You borrowed their family documents and the ring to study, you said. Both Bryants were listening to her now, and Vicky turned to them. There is a minister in San Francisco, a Mr. Hall, who has known Jack and Eleanor Roar and Lucy ever since Lucy was born. Would you take his word? Mr. Bryant gasped. What else did you find out, Mr. Dorn? Why did you never mention the minister to us? Because there is no such person in their family history, he said boldly. Lucy, he turned toward the false Lucy. Did you ever know a minister named Hall? No, our minister name is Dr. John Sands. Ah, you see, Marshal Bryant said, with satisfaction, I shall get in touch with Dr. Sands. I wish, Grandpa, said the false Lucy, that Dr. Sands were still alive. He tell you the truth. The true Lucy suddenly asked, suddenly said, Ask Mr. Hall. I'll give you his address and telephone number. Marshal Bryant eyed her distrustfully, but his wife said, You haven't answered my question, Vicky. What else did you find out? Doran tried to prevent Vicky from speaking. He heaped her with scorn and flatly denied all the allegations, but Mrs. Bryant insisted. Vicky started out to enumerate her points. The so-called Lucy had not worked in Whitney decorators because there was no such firm ever existed. Her alleged doctor, Dr. Alice James, did not exist. The address where she said she had lived did not exist. 
Lies, lies, Dorn said to Mr. Bryan. I visited every one of those persons and places myself. You have not my word for it. Marshal Bryant nodded, and Vicky said to him, Mr. Dorn is the one who is lying. You have only his word for these things, and he has his mother and this girl he misrepresents to be your granddaughter, and they're all in collusion together. I'll take you to court for libel, Vicky Barr, Dorn shouted, fairly shouted. She ignored that and appealed to the Bryants. Send an impartial investigator to San Francisco or go yourselves. You will find out from the Interstate Insurance Company that there was a Lucy worked there ever since she got out of school. Talk to Mr. Hall. Talk to Jill Joseph, who lives in Lucy's old house in Sereto Heights. She and her parents, the Rosetters, knew Lucy's parents. Ridiculous, said Don, with a little laugh. Perhaps this other girl's name actually is Lucy Rowe, though I doubt it. But even if it is, that does not make her your granddaughter, and you are heir. Can you see how easy it is for an unscrupulous girl to claim to be your kin, who you've never seen? A crude attempt, I must say. Vicky saw that she was getting nowhere. The more points she raised, the more Doran, with a lawyer's great verbal skill, twisted and bypassed them. He managed to make Vicky's statement appear implausible. He ensured tested proofs of his own correctness. Lucy, sitting beside her, was numb with misery. Vicky looked at the false Lucy and had inspiration. She addressed her directly and sharply. See here, Dorothy, I know a great deal about you. The false Lucy started. Yes, I know it was you who lost your gold charm, inscribed Dorothy on the plane. I know you came from Chicago, not San Francisco. I didn't. Her name isn't Dorothy, Dornbroke. And I know, Vicky kept on, that you arrived two days earlier than you pretended to the Bryans, where you were... Where were you those days? Lies, Dorn said. She, Mrs. Bryant turned to the agitated girl. Two days earlier, is this true? Don't you know, Vicky kept at the girls, that this impersonator, another person, is a crime, and you can go to jail for it? I'm not. I didn't, the fake Lucy stammered. You better tell the truth, Marshal Bryant warned her. The false Lucy burst into tears. He talked me into doing it, she cried. Thurman said as soon as we were married... My name would be Dorn, and no one could ever know of this impersonation. Calling myself Lucy Rohr was just for a little while. Marshal Brandt, in his anger, was having difficulty breathing. Vicky feared he might suffer another heart attack. Just for a little while, he re repeated heavily, While you tricked us into believing you were our granddaughter, eh? I suppose you planned to keep up the pretense and call yourself Lucy indefinitely. Only now you've lost your nerve. Thurman never told me that there was a real Lucy Roar. He never told me I'd be cheating anyone, the other girl asserted, weeping. Don't blame me. He and his mother told me that Lucy was dead, only you didn't know it, and that we might as well have the inheritance for ourselves, instead of letting some stupid charities have it. Thurman and Mr. Heath, Mrs. Heath are to blame, not me. Dorn tried to break in, but the girl went on half hysterically. They said, with my dramatic school training and being a quick study, I could easily play Lucy's part. You're telling half-truths, Dorn said. You never objected to becoming rich, did you? Keep quiet, both of you, Marshal Bryant ordered. The man turned toward Vicky. What's this about Dorn's mother? Yes, didn't you once tell us, Miss Bryant asked the young lawyer, that your mother is in Chicago, was widowed, and has remarried? What is your mother's name? Dorn tugged at 
hard at his mustache and refused to answer. Mr. Dorn, Miss Bryant reminded him, we can find out about from your firm. Dorn muttered her name is Heath, Elizabeth Heath. She is a widowed for the second time, and she is alone except for me. So you thought you provide for your mother, yourself, and your fiancé at my expense, Marshal Bryant said bitterly. No wonder you were in such a hurry to have me sign over the parcels of stock and bonds to Lucy, Dorothy, whatever her name is. The girl gave me her name, very low, Dorothy Clinton. Well, I rescind that immediately. About Mrs. Heath, Mrs. Bryant said, she actually kept this girl, our, our granddaughter. It is hard for her to reserve what her thinking out of sight. Yes, the pretense of a job, Vicky answered. Not only that, they also planned to get her to abroad, and maybe never to return. The Bryants both cut their breasts. Mr. Bryant got up and pulled at a wall cord to summon the butler. I'm going to call the police, he said. Wait just a minute, sir, Don said. You still have no final proof of who this girl is. I have proof, the true Lucy spoke up. I have some proof with me, and much more, if I can get my things back from Mrs. Heath. Besides, I'm sure Mr. Hall and some of my San Francisco friends and old teachers will come east to vouch for me. They've all known me all my life, and known my mother and father, too. All right, all right, the elderly man said, and passed his hand over his eyes. No one except Vicky noticed the butler waiting at the door. Mrs. Bryan stared dazedly at Dorn. Maybe you'd better start your explanations with the very beginning of this rotten scheme, Marshal Bryant said. You're going to have to explain to us and the police sooner or later. Dorn put his head in his hands. Very well, I will. Then he said, I have some papers in my briefcase in the hall, sir. Dorn stood up as if you'll permit me to get them. Suddenly he seized the false Lucy by the hand and they ran out of the room. The butler was so stunned by surprise that he was motionless. So was everyone else for a few seconds until Vicky sprang to her feet. Don't let them get away. She and the butler ran after them and she saw Dorn and the girl racing down the marble steps along the street. Vicky and the Bryant's man tore after them. They were heading toward the taxicab, waiting at the curb a few houses out. Vicky saw a gray-haired woman in the taxi who looked familiar. Mrs. Heath. Driver, Vicky called out. Don't take those people. They're criminals. Catch that man, the butler shouted. The taxi driver jumped out and caught Dorn, and he struggled to tear free, while Dorothy screamed at the butler to let her go. Vicky reached Mrs. Heath just as the old woman tried to slip away. Out of nowhere, a policeman appeared on the run. What's all the shouting about, he demanded. What's the matter here? From the top of the house steps, Marshal Bryant told them to all come into the house. Pay the driver his fare, he directed the butler, so he can go. The policeman heard the rest of them into the house, with Dorothy screaming now at with Dorothy screaming now at Dorn. Vicky walked in beside Mrs. Heath, who looked as if she too had slept in her clothes last night. Mrs. Heath scornfully could not even glance in Vicky's direction. They all sat down in the room and the parakeets where Mrs. Bryant and Lucy waited together. Marshal Bryant explained the situation briefly to the police, who said, You better phone the precinct for a couple of detectives, Mr. Bryant. This is out of my jurisdiction. I'll stay until they get here, though. Mr. Bryant instructed the butler to telephone. Then he said to Dorn, Talk. Thurman Dorn sat crumpled in a chair, head bent. He plucked at his fingers as he almost inaudibly told the whole story. 
He had always had to struggle along and economize, he said, and he felt that as an educated man, he was entitled to more than a small salary job. His mother and his fiancée, too, were ambitious and resentful of scribbling along. They felt they were entitled to wealth just as much as people like the Bryants. Thurman Doran was determined to get rich as quickly as possible. His attitude was once you have a great deal of money, people won't care or dare ask how you acquired it. When the Bryants engaged him to search for their granddaughter of their heir, whom they had never seen, Doran calculated this would be his main chance. The Bryants' fortune was so big that he was willing to risk committing a crime. He believed that his cleverness and knowledge of the law could protect him, and he believed his, he had evolved a foolproof scheme to present his fiancée to the Bryants after their unknown granddaughter, and then married her and threw her gains at the Bryant fortune. He flew to Chicago and tucked his mother and Dorothy into the scheme. First, though, Dorn had to learn whether Lucy Rohr could be gotten out of the way. He and Miss Heath went to San Francisco in mid-January and learned something the Bryants did not and learned something the Bryants did not know that Jack Rohr had died two years earlier. This left Lucy alone in the world and suited Dora's scheme, Dorn's scheme, perfectly. Dorn also learned that. Lucy was working as a secretary at an interstate and had moved several times in the past few years and had just moved into the woman's hotel. The next step was for Mrs. Heath to move to the hotel, Elcott, strike up an acquaintance with Lucy and offer her a job out of town or traveling. At the same time, Mrs. Heath learned a great deal more about Lucy and passed the information along to Dorn. Meanwhile, Dorn located a well-hidden house in the back country and rented it and a car for Mrs. Heath. Then Dorn flew alone to Chicago, where for two days he coached Dorothy in the role of Lucy. To do this, he used the information gained by Mrs. Heath and by himself in talking with the Bryants. Dorothy memorized certain facts of Lucy's life and acted out a personality designed to please the Bryants. Dorn carefully supplied her with the story about Lucy's recent past. He promised Dorothy further advice on the role of Lucy. Dorn then flew on to New York and he reported to the Bryants that he could not find their granddaughter, who was away on a month's trip. He was allowing his mother time to get Lucy out of San Francisco and into hiding. He also borrowed from the Bryants, from the safe, their house, family letters and photographs, and Mr. Bryant's, Sil Mrs. Bryant's silver ring, ostensibly to study them. Actually, Dorn, in the next hour, had the photographs and letter photos stated, and he mailed them to Dorothy in Chicago to study for developing her role. The same day, he took the silver ring to a jeweler and had it sketched to be copied. Within a few days, the third silver ring was ready to be mailed. It was ready, and he mailed it to Dorothy. Meanwhile, Doran had promptly returned all the original to the Bryans. The rest of their scheme was to persuade Lucy to leave the United States and stay abroad. Unfortunately for them, Vicky had observed the false Miss Elro on her Chicago to New York flight, and by the time Dorothy had devised a makeup and hairstyle which helped her to resemble superficially the faces, the face in Mr. Bryan's family photographs, Dorn, who had never talk, taken very, Vicky seriously and did not bother to remember with what airline she was a stewardess, 
never told Dorothy to stay off Federal Airlines. On Dorothy's part, there was a piece of carelessness that on the flight she had worn and lost the golden charm inscribed with her own name. Arriving in New York on a Tuesday, Dorothy went to a hotel, and on that day and Wednesday, she and Dorn held the final she and Dorn held a final thorough rehearsal of her role of her role. On Thursday, Dorn brought her to the Bryant, saying, Here is your granddaughter, who has just flown in from San Francisco. Dorothy had acted her role so convincingly that the Bryants did not doubt this charming girl was truly their granddaughter. That's all, Dorn finished. His voice sounded hollow. My second trip to San Francisco was just for show, so that I could come back and say I found your granddaughter. Lies from the start to finish, Bryant, Marshal Bryant said angrily. I'll see that the three of you pay for this. What a fool you've been, Dorn. You threw aside a promising career with Steele and Wilbur, one of the most reputable law firms in the country, when your employers hear about this vicious scheme. Two men quietly came into the room. We're precinct detectives, one of them said, and they showed their identification. We've been standing in the hall and heard the whole thing. Can you arrest these three swindlers at once, Marshal Bryant demanded, for what they've done to my wife and me, and to an innocent girl? Yes, sir, said the detective. You're under arrest, Dorn, and so are you two women on conspiracy charges. I know my rights, Dorn asserted. I'm a lawyer. You can't. I can, said the detectives. Let me quote the law to you, Mr. Dorn. The unlawful acts you three persons plan to commit, and in part did commit, are fraud, misrepresentation, and obtaining money or property under false pretenses. I object, I vehemently object, Don said. We may have planned it, but we haven't actually obtained the inheritance. That's beside the point, the detective said. Quote, persons agreeing together to commit a crime can be prosecuted for conspiracy. In a conspiracy, it doesn't matter whether the unlawful act agreed upon is carried out or not. You're under arrest for conspiracy. Get up, all three of you. Don shrugged and said no more. He, Mrs. Heath, and Dorothy stood up. The false Lucy pulled the silver ring off her ring and bitterly threw it at Dorn. Marshal Bryant said, You're being arrested for conspiracy, but I'm going to bring action against you in the courts The whole lot, for a whole lot more, for fraud, misrepresentation, and for detention of Lucy. They'll draw heavy sentences, the detective said. All right, get going. When they were all gone, the Bryants and Lucy and Vicky were able to speak for a few minutes. They looked at one another. Miserable business, Marshal Brandt growled. Mrs. Bryant went to sit next to Lucy and put her arms around her. My child, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Nor alone anymore, Lucy asked timidly. Nor alone anymore, the grandmother answered. We, will she, Marshal, will she make up to you? Well, she'll make up to you for all the hard things we've been through. Tell me, my dear, did your mother have a pet name for you? Yes, it was Lucindia, Lucy said. Sometimes Lucindia Bell, just for fun. That used to be your grandfather's special name for me, Mrs. Bride said, and both the old people smiled at Lucy. Mrs. Bryant leaned forward to touch Vicky's hand. Vicky, how can we ever thank you, she said. You and Lucy and all of us must always be friends. Vicky smiled as she looked at Lucy's happy face. I think we will be, she said.